the climate crisis and the U.S. military. Welcome to the conversation, everybody. I'm David Schuster. Lakes and rivers are drying up faster than expected. Temperature extremes seem more pronounced. And by most accounts, the climate crisis is coming on a lot faster and sooner than most of the forecasts had predicted. So now what? Well, a group of U.S. military veterans are asking Congress to make some changes in terms of how the military contributes to all of this. And joining us to talk about it is Chris Velasquez. He is the digital organizer of Veterans for Peace. Uh, Chris, good of you to join us. First, tell me, how did this group come together? So Veterans for Peace has been around since uh, the 80s. Uh, it comes out of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, a long legacy of veterans that have been uh, mobilizing and moving uh, within peace movement and anti-war work uh, uh, and have a long legacy of doing that. The work around the climate has uh, evolved over time as uh as veterans have identified the issues that has arisen from our participation in war around the world. And those issues include, include essentially a total lack of transparency by the U.S. military in terms of how it contributes to climate change. You could, you could absolutely, you could call it a lack of transparency. We refer to it as a black box. Uh, we know that the U.S. is one of the largest, car has the largest carbon footprint in the world uh, when it comes to uh, carbon production. And that's just based off of oil sales and fossil fuel sales to the military. It is a complete black box with no actual transparency about the impact of uh, military missions, what war actually does, the uses of Agent Orange, burn pits, the PACT Act was just passed, and that has to do with environmental collapse and uh, environmental contaminants. Uh, so we know that the military and war in and of itself is one of the leading causes of uh, climate crisis that we face today. And you mentioned burn pits. Given all the attention that burn pits recently got in the legislation that went through Congress, I think a lot of Americans might be surprised to learn that actually the military, okay, maybe there's concern about how to help veterans after they've been exposed to burn pits, but there doesn't seem to be much action that's been taken to decrease burn pits, to limit the amounts of nuclear waste or all the other ways that the military contributes to this. That's absolutely true. Uh, and part of that goes into this concept of greenwashing the military, where we try to uh, obfuscate the harm that is done by replacing our Humvee fleet with electric Humvees without actually addressing the root causes. Uh, the military has recognized, the U.S. government has recognized that uh, environmental uh, contaminants like burn pits are pervasive and affect everybody, the local nationals, the military members that are there near them, uh, the soil, the air, the water systems that are near these burn pits and these uh, contaminants uh, without actually any work on uh, decreasing the emissions or the, the underlying causes of and why is that? Why is it so difficult for the military of all institutions to try to tackle some of the problems that it's creating? I think for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is, uh, as the former, uh, being a Marine, former Marine myself, I'm going to hark, like, look back at uh, uh, Smedley Butler, who said war is a racket. Uh, it is in the best interest of the military industrial complex companies, the companies that get profit to maintain the system of war that we have right now. Not only uh, continue uh, getting all the money that it's getting and not sort of making dramatic changes, but also the sort of underlying need for the military to be seen as having anything wrong with it. That that's true. Yes, that and it has to do with the military is long known and recognized that the that the climate crisis is an issue. Uh, the the DOD has released uh, long reports of referring to climate crisis as the new frontier of warfare uh, and decided to focus on a strategy of an armed lifeboat strategy, which reinforces uh, border 
uh, strength. Uh, it, it has no real addressment for climate refugees or anything. It's an insular isolationist policy. And we saw that over years with Trump and continued with the children that are still in cages at border right now uh, and to this day. And that furthers the military industrial complex profits because that's who is, is profiting from it. Yeah, and those sort of profits, of course, and we're talking about a budget of you know close to a trillion dollars a year now. And it sounds like your group is not only asking for the budget to be cut, but also the existing money that the Pentagon gets, the DOD gets to, to shift its priorities. Yes, uh, there's a movement for conversion. Uh, the same companies that are doing uh, Raytheon, Lockheed, uh, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, uh, Elbit systems, the the technology that they're making can be utilized to further civilian industries without focusing on war. They can also convert the that budget into actually meeting the material conditions of the civilian population uh, that lead to strife within the world. We must convert our policy and our procedures and our technology to actually providing adaptable solutions going forward instead of just furthering uh, the usage of drone warfare to drop bombs on innocent civilians in overseas. Now, a lot of people are perhaps familiar that this latest um, bill that went through Congress uh, has given a lot of money towards climate change, the deal that Joe Biden just signed. There's been a law that's just passed in California that will require all vehicles within, I think it's 10 years, to go uh, from gas combustion to all electric. Uh, do those things impact the military? Can they impact the military? There's underlying issues with the, that bill in and of itself. Uh, it guaranteed a certain amount of uh, leasing, uh, lease lands going to fossil fuel extraction. It guaranteed that. Also, going to all EV vehicles still has uh, a, an extractive resource component to it. We are extracting more and more resources, cobalt, lithium, to produce batteries. We're still producing vehicles. We still are uh, operating inside a, a commodity system that doesn't actually address uh, the root causes of transportation issues or address the individual needs and doesn't degrowth or actually provide adaptable solutions. It contains the, it maintains the status quo. Uh, and that shift in the civilian sector is also going to occur inside the military where we'll see more emphasis on nuclear uh, submarines or nuclear powered uh, systems. But while we have 800 military bases around the world that are still uh, polluting and doing and conducting their missions, uh, it Abram tanks. Uh, we our our vehicle fleet has to main, do maintenance testing, and that includes just idling our our tanks in the middle of the desert and just polluting for hours on end. Uh, use burning JP8, which is a type of uh, jet fuel. So um, it. It doesn't shift and doesn't solve the problems of how the military contributes to the climate crisis, just both in maintaining their standing military and in the military tempo, the tempo of warfare. Chris, when you talk to other veterans, other military veterans about this, um, what's been the reaction and has the reaction, say, changed over the past few years? I think I think there's a bit of a uh, it goes both ways. I think a lot of people are very a lot of veterans are very well aware of the what they went through while they were in service uh, and know what it is, but they don't have a lot of people supporting that message that pushes back on that that rampant militarism or military glorification in civilian society. Uh, so for a veteran coming home, it is easier to buy into accepting that military glorification, that worship as being a veteran, instead of going, our service was really terrible. 
we saw a lot of things. We were exposed to a lot of things, and the climate is is affected by it. I think people or veterans are more uh, uh, apt to find that accepting camaraderie around that idea and are receptive to it when you start talking to it, talking about it, and you break it down into how it affects them after they've gotten out and and the, how it affected them when they went in, and due to reasons of the economic draft and things like that, people are more apt to talk about their military service in honest terms. And what about political leaders? Which political leaders that we may know of are advocates for what you're trying to do? And, and who are the surprises that may not be returning your calls? Uh, so uh, uh, Representative Barbara Lee has worked with Veterans for Peace and has done some amazing work over the years. There's uh, a House resolution that I'm blanking off, off the top of my head right in this moment uh, that has put forward to uh, for an audit for some transparency surrounding uh, climate emissions of the U.S. military, um, AOC and the squad have also been supportive. Uh, Ayanna Presley has worked with various members of Veterans for Peace around, amongst other issues as well. And we could very easily point at um, uh, the typical figures of Joe Manchin being hesitant and and the pushback around uh, and and maintaining uh, a link to fossil fuels uh, and. And you know what, what? What when I hear you talk about you know Barbara Lee and her effort to simply have an audit. Um, it's hard to imagine how anybody, how could anybody be against an audit simply to find out, well, what sort of carbon footprint is the military spewing out there? And then if they want to have a debate about whether the military should transfer away from fossil fuels to something else, that's separate. But but again, the reluctance that so many members of Congress have simply to find out more about what our military is doing seems puzzling. It 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 absolutely is. And it the military operates inside this uh chamber, uh this this protective bubble that uh is shielded by lack of transparency. Uh we know that the F-35 program as a plane, as a jet program, has absolute failure. It is not a a, a plane that is ready to fly or it's not a program. And that's been a long trend inside the military. When I was in the Osprey, it was a huge, huge issue. Uh and they went through many iterations and it was a pipe dream project and it finally hit the fleet and was usable. But that is the same kind of mindset and, and practice that is, allows uh, the military to hide its carbon emissions and its uses of fossil fuels. Uh, are you an optimist or pessimist when it comes to uh, seeing the military make a change? Uh, I am an optimist because the movement is showing uh, that people are again more and more. Uh, the trend is that recruiters are having tr trouble finding hitting recruitment goals. Uh, the military is is uh, hurting in that regard. More and more public opinion and the younger generation is pushing back on the acceptance of the military. Uh, I am an optimist that there will be change. I think it comes with a cultural revolution and a change in our politics, though. Well, I, I hope you are right. And um, that is an interesting point that the military is an institution. If it wants to be able to attract uh, the best and brightest of the future. It's got to change itself. Um, Chris Velasquez, Veterans for Peace digital organizer. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate uh, you being on the program. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. You got it. Take care. Jane Cash and women's rights. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Conversation. I'm David Schuster. In the wake of voters in Kansas supporting abortion rights in that state, a lot of Democrats are now trying to figure out, well, where does this battle go next? And some Democrats are pointing out the amount of money that organizations like AT&T, Disney, Comcast, Walmart, Uber, and others are giving to anti-abortion politicians. So we're here to talk about that. 
effort of trying to squeeze some of these companies and help support women is Shauna Tama. She's the executive director and co-founder of Ultraviolet, which is an organization, a community which tries to help and improve the lives of women. Shauna, thanks for joining us. First of all, what was your reaction to Kansas? Uh, Kansas was such an important win. I think clearly for the people in Kansas and from neighboring states who rely on Kansas for access to abortion services where abortion has been banned or will be soon. Um, But also nationally, I think people needed to see and reconnect with the fact that when democracy works, when people can make their voices heard, when the majority's voice can be heard, we can win. Um, And it was such a stark and important contrast, I think, to what we saw a few days later in Indiana, where democracy did not work, where you had a set of, you know, gerrymandered districts and and corrupt legislature, legislators, frankly, passing, you know, an abortion ban that is opposed by the majority of people in their state. What has been the reaction, I suppose, if any, to to both states in corporate America? In other words, that I mean, is corporate America changing and feeling a greater responsibility on these issues, or are they taking a pass? I think corporations are recognizing that the stakes of this moment are enormous. They had both for their employees, for their consumers, for democracy. And I think they're struggling with what their response should be. Um, there, you know, what we saw right out of the gate was hundreds of corporations, some of the biggest corporations in the country. Um, you know, offering travel benefits, really trying to signal, I think, in response to employee demands for what they're going to do for those of us, right? The employees who are being impacted. Um, but these same corporations are giving millions of dollars to political candidates and their associated PACs on the local, state, and federal level. And these contributions have a huge impact on state elections with smaller budgets and really far ranging consequences. And we're not seeing yet, but I'm confident, you know, a lot of these corporations are considering right now is what to do about that because it's being exposed. Companies like AT&T and Comcast, you know, gave a combined $500,000 to the politicians behind the Mississippi 15 week ban that the Supreme Court used to gut our federal right to an abortion. Um, excuse me, and you know, I think both employees and consumers and politicians are starting to hold them accountable for that. Now these corporations where they're talking about Comcast, AT&T and others, they say, look, it's not that we don't support abortion rights. We are giving to politicians across the board because we want a certain regulatory environment for our core businesses. And AT&T and Comcast said, look, they're not in the abortion business. They're in the business of entertainment and media. And that's why they're giving money to these politicians who happen to also be against abortion. What do you make of that argument? Well, first of all, corporations need to start recognizing that attacks on abortion are also the attacks on our democracy and that they're not going to be successful. They do not have a business state. It is not in their business interest to continue to allow democracy to be attacked in this way. But look, corporations, you know, they give money to politicians, as you said, as a way to, as they say, as a way to buy support for narrow business interests. You know, when a company donates to a political candidate, it powers that politician's entire political platform, though, and that's what they need to start to come to terms with. It's reckless. You know, what they're doing, giving, giving directly undermines abortion rights, it, or it undermines voting rights, um, and it's helping to advance fascism, right? So even if a corporation also gives to pro abortion candidates, I would argue this doesn't cancel out, right? It's contributions to anti abortion candidates, the impact remains the same. Anti-abortion lawmakers more easily win elections thanks to corporate support, and they pass dangerous laws um, when there are not this that cause direct harm to their consumers and workers alike. So I don't think that that defense is going to hold much longer. 
Where does the pressures campaign stand right now with corporations? Uh, what is the strategy right now from women's rights organizations? And, and what is the general strategy that you're guiding people towards who are maybe customers of some of these companies? Sure, so a really big part of this strategy was first just exposing the truth about corporate complicity, about corporate funding. Um, and a lot of journalists have been um, have been doing this and a lot of women's rights organizations. Ultraviolet has been running this and doing this for two years now, specifically around AT&T, Coca-Cola, Disney, Nike, Procter and Gamble, Uber. Um, and you know what we are, the phase that we are in now, I should say, is you know helping consumers and corporate employees sort of understand their power to start to overturn destructive political giving, um, to you know to leverage the fact that businesses in fact need our good favor and opinion to thrive as much as they need a democracy to thrive. So we're also starting to just reflect out how consumer sentiment is shifting. Right, seventy percent of younger consumers across race and gender are concerned with these corporate contributions. We released that polling data. Um, I think it was last week. Two thirds of younger consumers say they would be less likely to buy or use a company's products if they knew that the company donated to anti-abortion politicians. 50% of young consumers are both pro-abortion and willing to boycott companies whose donations don't support their abortion views. You know, 69% of young people say they would think twice before applying to work for a company that donates to anti-abortion lawmakers, which gets to the employee piece. There are employees that are actively agitating both publicly and privately behind the scenes. And it's really the job of people on the outside to support their efforts to change the way their companies function, to change the way those companies operate. And what's been the reaction so far from the people in charge of these corporations? Have any of them said, okay, uh, give us some time to, to work this out. We hear you, we understand the concerns. Uh, where are they coming down on this? Yeah, different corporations are doing different things. Uh, from what I can tell, AT&T has set up a whole war room to deal with this line of attack. Others are, you know, are remaining pretty silent. Um, they are occasionally responding to journalists' inquiry, saying things like, "We didn't know," <laughs> or "We're looking at it further." I mean, that's an important step to do their own research about their own political giving. But we know the truth. I think they know the truth, and they're, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do, where to go with it. We do. Know Know though that corporations will respond to consumer pressure on these issues. I mean, Match.com was really the first to say, "Oh, I, I didn't realize we were, you know, we didn't realize we were funding attorneys general. Um, we're not going to do that anymore." Uh, we should expect to see more of that. You know, in the aftermath, and part of this where this came from from us was in the aftermath of the 2020 uprisings for Black Lives. You know, we saw corporations really scramble to promote their reputations as socially conscious brands. Right after the January insurrection at the Capitol, a lot of corporations saw that their political giving to anti-democratic lawmakers was a liability. Many of them pledged to stop giving to those politicians that supported the attack on our democracy. Those are the same exact politicians advancing abortion bans, right? So now we have to force corporations to really align their corporations with these pledges, stop funding anti-abortion extremists. And what you know, what we're hoping to see soon is corporations who may not have been giving a tremendous amount in the past, but you know, understand the stakes are gonna be willing to say publicly, we're not gonna do it because it doesn't align with who we are as a company. It's dangerous for our consumers and our employees. And that, you know, and 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 showing that momentum will hopefully put the pressure that's needed on these larger corporations that are doing the most damage and moving the most money um, to 
overturn our basic rights and freedoms. Well, and it seems like there shouldn't be that much of a lift for a lot of these corporations. I mean, for the last 15 or 20 years, there's been corporate and social responsibility, which has been a key talking point for a lot of corporations, making sure that they're giving back to the community, that they're you know, supporting, for example, a clean energy, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's not as if this sort of issue comes out of left field that people might want to a company to focus on something other than it's just its core product. 100%. AT&T, Disney, P&G, Nike, Coca-Cola, Uber, they all run advertising campaigns to brand themselves. They aren't just embracing this as a policy internally, they're, they're branding themselves as socially conscious companies that value diversity, they value inclusion, women's empowerment, racial justice. But what we're exposing here is that behind closed doors, their political giving shows the opposite values and actions, right? They're giving millions of dollars to anti-justice. Um, um, politicians, and you know, I think there's there is a, I think the time is sort of running out on their ability to hold on to that strategy, which is not working for them. It's not working for the country. It's not working for the people who work for them. We mentioned Kansas and what happened in Indiana. Where is the next major fight over abortion rights? Well, it's happening. You know, it's in a few places. There's there's there are a couple places where abortion is on the ballot. Michigan is looming very large for a lot of people. Um, for both political reasons and because um, you have a governor who is fighting really hard to retain um, abortion access. There's, but there's also states where it's gonna be really important for abortion access to be expanded, whether we're talking about California or New York. Um, and you know, so it's it, it, between now really and the election, this is this is this is really about a fight to get as many people registered as possible and as many people focused on 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 mobilizing to make sure we turn out for the people who are going to protect our rights and freedoms who are going to protect abortion access so the the you know the the there is a conversation that is going to look different based on region and based on the state. But the, the truth is the next fight is election day. And um, what has been the impact as far as the 2022 midterms? Are you one of those people who think, look, maybe this has energized Democrats in a way that enables them not only to add seats in the Senate, but also possibly hold the House? I don't think that happens by magic. I think they have to work for it. Um, but I think they are increasingly seeing the polling. I think they they saw what happened in Kansas, you know, in a red state in the middle of the country. And I think that if they really trust the data, trust who they're, you know, the people who are telling them, right, which is the majority, that they're not aligned with this. Um, it's a huge opportunity for them to exploit Republican overreach. And you know it's really up to Democrats to seize that opportunity to understand the stakes, to understand that you know for people who may not have seen themselves as abortion activists, may not have ever believed that this moment was possible. Um, they need to you know they they need to hear and see Democrats really champion this, under knowing that this is something that they are going to work to reverse, right, and to restore our rights and freedoms. And if they do that. I think all the calculations people were making about the midterms earlier this year are gonna be dead wrong. Shana um, Thomas, she's executive director, co-founder of Ultraviolet. Shauna, thanks for joining us, we appreciate it. Thank you.